0: Let us go now to the book of Amos, the minor prophet Amos, in chapter 6 of that book. And let us read the first the 14 verses of chapter 6. Beginning to read with verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Woe to you who are at Zayis in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. Notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to um, to Calneh to and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put, off, put far off the day of doom, who cause the seat of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out on your couches eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent yourselves musical instruments like David who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments but are not grieved for the afflictions of Joseph therefore they shall they shall now go captive as the first of the captives and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. The Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when a relative of the dead with one who will with one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? Then someone will say, none. And then he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord gives a command. He will break the great house into bits and the little house into pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over Lo-debar, who say, have we not taken uh, Karnajim for ourselves for by our own strength? But behold, <clears throat> I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Erebus. Let the, Lord, the Lord's word be fervent in our hearts as we think about this today as a passage. In the Christian church and in most local churches, we have delight in the peace of the church. And in fact, God calls us to pray that there would be peace in the church, that there would be Uh, a tranquility that would mark the people of the church, their families, their lives, and all of that kind of thing. So the peace of the church, the peace of Zion, is a wonderful thing. And uh, in fact, Salem, uh, which Jerusalem is taken as a name, has a derivative sense in it about peace and the, the idea of the Sabbath has an idea about peace. So peace is a wonderful thing for which we strive. But we are called by this text to remember that peace is also a byproduct of holiness and righteousness. And when we feel peace, and when we feel really at ease and relaxed, and we're not living very righteously, our lives are far from the Lord, then uh, that is a mirage. And it's a mistake of the soul. It's a mistake that the soul cultivates to a to a destructive end. Today, our culture itself feeds upon the idea of peace. Um, one of the reasons that we have come, that we have started to be so. Um, mealy-mouthed or quiet or subdued about saying anything harsh to each other is because of this sense that we have in our culture. Now we're not concerned. When I was a young person, we were concerned about real aggressions. We were concerned about bad people doing bad things. But in today's world... We're concerned about what we call microaggressions. The slightest uh, interference with our peace of mind that somebody else might bring to us, we consider that a major sin. And so at the same time, ironically, at the same time that our city governments and that our state governments and federal government is uh, taking away any kind of pressure upon real criminality, and uh, and uh, calling for a minimization of sentencing, minimization of prison, minimization of condemnation. At the very same time, it's sending people to jail now, both Canada and the United States, sending people to jail for these microaggressions. Well, Mich- Michigan, you know, doubt heard just a few weeks ago, has now made it a civil crime, a criminal crime, to not call somebody by the pronouns that they want to be called by. Now, these are not things that are obvious to us, whether you want to be called he or she or you or whatever else the pronoun you might be used. You can't see that on the face of a person. Usually, normally, you can't see that on the face of a person. Uh, so to criminalize things like that, show how, how out of whack and how, um, how trivial, in a sense our sense of right and wrong and our sense of offense has become. Well, in this case, in this scripture that we have before us, we have learned how in the last chapter, we learned how God had finally come through Amos. And Amos is the first of the prophets to exhort them and to warn them about the day of the Lord. And uh, that's a that's a phrase that you may have heard before. You may not think it's all that unique. But in Amos' mouth, Uh, The day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's not a day of meeting like this today. It's not a day of joy. The day of the Lord, Amos gives you an authoritative interpretation. And I told you last week, he's the first one to do this. And now after Amos' proclamation, that other prophets like Isaiah and, and Malachi also lifted up this phrase and talked about the day of the Lord, the day of judgment coming. And so... Uh, Israel, remember Amos is a prophet to was born in Judah in Tekoa and he was called though to prophesy in Israel. So he was called to go from his home area, his home state, and like a foreign missionary, go to a foreign place. Of course, you receive less acknowledgement there. Your people in strange places are less open to you. They get more angry at you quicker because you're a stranger there. Uh, And uh, some years ago, I learned, when, uh, having to do with where I was a pastor in Lynchburg, Virginia, when it had some things like this happen. I learned. I thought for the first time, my word, Jesus Christ, his whole life basically was lived outside of Galilee, outside of of uh, of Nazareth, where he was born or where he, where he lived. I mean, as a child, and how his whole life then was a, was an itinerant ministry. Itinerant is a, 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 a an adjective that we usually use for a preacher who goes on for or as a missionary and he goes to strange places. We used to we used to have mission uh, itinerant pastors here in America. The Methodists were famous for being itinerant, but also some uh, Presbyterians. And so Amos was this itinerant, and he was called to go to this strange place, northern Israel, after they had had the civil war, after they divided between Judah in the south and Israel and the ten tribes in the north. He was called to go up there and to prophesy to them. And what he brought then was the very word Amos. The name Amos means a burden. And what we see when when we watch Amos and we listen to him we see a man who was under a burden because he had to announce these bad news kinds of things to the Northern Ten Tribes. And, uh, you know, the Northern Ten Tribes had divided off under uh, King Jeroboam at one point, and, uh, and things hadn't gotten better since then. They set up a, a, a rival kingdom, a uh, castle in Samaria up on, the, up on the, uh, Mount um, the Ebal, uh, above the valley of Samaria. And uh, they basically set to duplicate what was going on in Jerusalem in the north. And um, there were some godly people there, but many of the godly people there would go, would, would take a pilgrimage, and they would go down to, uh, down, down to Judah on the feast days. And they would worship there and um, try to retain their orthodoxy despite all the negative effects that were going on in the northern ten tribes. And so, but things went from bad to worse, and so Amos goes, he's called by God to go, and to announce God's judgments upon Israel. If you remember the broad skeins of Israeli history, you remember that the northern ten tribes were overcome first by the kingdom of Assyria, taken into captivity, and never never to return, uh, unless they escaped to Judah. And so the, uh, then, then the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin, then they, they too had their day of judgment, but that was from the, the kingdom of Babylon. And so the whole nation was moving step by step in a bad direction. They were moving further and further away from a real evangelical respect and love for God to a more and more secular perspective where they would do their religious ceremonies but they really did not have a heart for it so that when Jesus Christ came uh, 800 years after the 750 after this, when Jesus Christ came, the best teachers in the land, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't even recognize Jesus. Their hearts were so far from the Old Testament gospel message that Jesus came to bring or to fulfill. <clears throat> and so here we see uh, here we see them. In the sixth chapter. Now, the first part—I've got the outline for the sermon in the uh, in the uh, lower part of the first page of the bulletin. There, or the inside page of the bulletin. And uh, uh, the first point that was brought out here is this: easy groupthink is hard to dispel. Uh, I don't know how many of you think that you're a victim of group speak, groupthink today, but. It's really prevalent, and it has to do with the way God created us. God created us as individuals, to be sure, but he also created us as family people and as social creatures so that we would both have a, a sense of things as an individual, but that we'd, we would also have an interest in the society in which we were. And uh, and this, these, this duality of man uh, tends to go on and on and on. We... Uh, although the term, the study of this uh, sociology is a rather modern concept from the 20th century, <clears throat> uh, maybe a few pioneers in the in the 19th century, but uh, uh, that is just an aspect of this so that we, in modern times now, we study this, the, the sociological effects of mankind as in groups. But uh, what we see is that... Uh, this has a tend. This has a, a relationship here to what we call group think. Now, in, in the first verse, it starts out, "Woe to you who are at ease in Zion," and that goes back to this idea that I spoke of about us wanting to be at peace, wanting us to be at ease. But there's a time when we should not be. And so Amos is pronouncing these judgments over Israel, and now's the time to be concerned about the judgments and not to. Not to go around, you know, somebody gives you a a reason to worry or a reason to be concerned. You say, oh, come on. You know, that's just negative thinking. We want to be positive. There's a whole realm of positive thinking that has been philosophized and psychologized today for us. But uh, this was going strong in... In Israel at the time, we know that when the, during the Babylonian invasion, near the end, when Israel was going to be taken off the land, both north and south, we know that they were surrounded by the Babylonians. And yet the people inside the city of Jerusalem were offended when Jeremiah lifted up these condemnations against them at that time. They just had no patience with it whatsoever. They didn't want to hear it. They thought things are bad enough outside the city with these, these forces that have surrounded us. And now you want to disturb us. You want to to depress us from inside. And what Jeremiah was telling them is that they should surrender because it was a foregone conclusion. God had given them over to the Babylonians. They should not fight. They should not go through the starvation that they were going through. They should give up and and, and let God's judgment sweep over them. But the people said, no, we're not going to allow this. We've got our strength. We've got our brains. We're going to keep going. And so uh, in this case... This first verse applies. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria. That's where the capital was and they had a a worship center uh, built there. You can see it today if you go as a tourist to that part of the country. Um, uh, uh, Then uh, Jeremiah uh, Amos begins to speak um, uh, rhetorically to the people. He says, notable persons in the chief nation uh, to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to uh, Kalme uh, K- uh, and see. From there, go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? Now, the issue here is that Israel was being drawn off. They were being tempted with the gods and the, and the cultural ways of these nations around them. They just look more attractive. It's like people here in the East who think, oh, I'd love to go to Las Vegas. It just sounds like so much fun out there. So so different. It's a, a world in which I'm just totally unfamiliar. And so uh, people are tempted by strange things. They, um, we know in the creation, of God makes us cultural creatures, and we're interested in different al- aspects and elements of culture. Uh, different music comes out, and we're very prone to think about following that and entertaining ourselves with it. But there comes a point at which we should realize that the core of our culture is in the cult of the culture. And in the biblical sense, the the core of the biblical culture is the cult of Jehovah worship and the cult of Jesus worship in the New Testament. And so if you let yourself wander, if you let yourself be tempted like the Israelites were here, uh, then it's a bad thing. So, So God, in this sense, he names or through Amos, he names some of the other cities. Uh, Kalna was a, an old Hittite city that was north of was 120 miles north of Damascus and so of course without, without naming Assyria per se at this point he's pointing to the places where their judgment would come from and then and then uh, uh, Hamath was a, a city uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, again north of uh, Syria but, but to the east and then Gath was, of course, the Philistine city that was on the coast. But the Philistine culture was very tempting to Israel. And uh, we'll be having a Sunday school class today after worship in which we begin to study the, the, the Judge Samson, who was a judge during the Philistine uh, scourges against Israel. So the Philistine, So God mentions these foreign cities and he, he asks them, to consider these cities and he says, are you are you better than these kingdoms or is their territory uh, greater than your territory? Now, there's probably a double reason for making these comparisons. On one hand, Israel was very substantial in and of itself. Israel was not a small area there in the Middle East. And so God could have been saying to the people, uh, why? Why are you tempted by these far off and somewhat exotic places? Are you do not see what you have here? Are these are these foreign cities are they really better than yours or are you just tempted by their novelties? What 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 gives? Why are you tempted by these foreign cities? On the other hand the Lord may have been saying to them that uh that uh, that these that these cities were not better and that therefore they they shouldn't be tempted by them. But whatever he he brings their attention first of all to to try to awaken themselves come to uh, awaken, uh, think about these things real, really, so that um, they would not be caught up in the groupthink of their day. Now we are very uh, we' are very prone to groupthink in the modern world. And one of the problems I've seen in the church is that uh, we cannot, we really have trouble. The preachers of the churches have trouble detailing the evils of our day if the culture itself has not de- declared them to be evil. In other words, if the culture is happy with its sexuality or with its the structure that it has for families, or if the, ha- if the culture is happy with the tax system, uh, whereby 51% of the people can basically take from the 49% of the people because it's done by majority vote. It's very difficult to say that these things are wrong if the group think of the nation... Is different than that if it contradicts what you're trying to say. Even going to school, you know, if you if if you're not homeschooled or in a good Christian school, you'll see that there are there are these um, um, weather-like fronts of behavior and thinking that sweep through your school, and you you know that as a Christian it's hard to Go against that and to to fly in the face of that which is the groupthink of the nation. Now, the the problem is that God is not the God of groupthink. God does not draw his ideas or his opinions from what the group thinks. The Lord is original. He is God. And so he's the one that's supposed to set the uh, set the norms. And so uh, the second the second part of this passage from verse three and following begins to ask that. Well, first of all, it pronounces woe. Woe to you when you put far off the day of doom, who caused the seat of violence to continue, who you, you, who actually caused violence to come upon you. And yet you, you put off the day of doom as if that's going to help you. So then he has these comparisons right, right after verse 4 and following. Who lie on beds of ivory. Now these were the bed frames that they had in that day. If you're really exotic, like we have these beds today where they're motorized, where the feet can go up independently of the head. And then you can raise your head, you can raise your feet, you can have your your butt area, you know, down in the valley, or you can raise the head. You can sleep on an angle this way. You can sleep on an angle that way. So we had fancy beds in our day. Well, they had fancy beds in that day. The best of the beds were made from pure ivory, the bones of uh, elephant tusks and these kinds of, these were expensive things. But God says, uh, "Who he, he's challenging, he's pronouncing whoa." It's starting with the rich people, because unless you were very rich, you could not afford a bed of ivory, where the frame was ivory, and it would be so ornamentally beautiful. Um, he said, "So who lie in beds of ivory or stretch out on your couches, eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the straw?" Now, the illustration there is that normally, you let, when you have lambs and calves, you let them grow more, so that their the body weight. Proportionally gets gets heavier, and that way you, you make and make more money on the animal. If there's more meat there to eat. So, in this case, God is condemning them for for, uh, for taking lambs out of the flock early and taking calves away from the the, the cows early, so that they they would eat like the uh, an exotic uh, exotic meal that was not really as horticulturally wise as it might be but they were they were to be a a precious thing that uh would taste good and uh, so despite the economics of it you'd kill the you kill the lamb early or you'd take the calves when they were there in their earliest state of being veal you know uh, lamb has not gone through puberty yet as an animal and neither have uh, neither is veal or calves and their their meat is actually different than the meat of a grown cow, or um, or lamb, or sheep, and so uh, the sh- uh, lambs are eaten, but normally they are normally they let them grow to the toward the end of their that period where they've gone through where they're about to go through puberty, and so the lamb is as big as it can possibly be before the meat changes into uh, into mutton. But here, uh, God is saying, woe to you who put off the day of doom, who basically pretend you're, you're, you're enjoying your couches, you're enjoying the, your, your cuisine, uh, who sing idly by the, to the sound of stringed instruments uh, in the advent of your, and invent for yourselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls. The idea is here of lavish, abundant wine, who drink wine from the bowls and who anoint yourselves with the best ointments. But are not grieved uh, for the affliction of Joseph. So God is saying here: first of all, He condemns them as a people who are wayward. Secondly, he comes, he comes here and He condemns them because they're using all of these things as distractions. Today we have on our TVs, on our cable shows, we've got cooking shows and cuisine shows, and that's not bad in themselves. But people do, uh, people love to be distracted. In our day, uh, and there have been whole some whole books written about how the sinful dimensions of our culture are, are basically distractions from reality. Sports are just huge today. The, the, in, in the history of our nation, it was there was never a time like there is today, where sports dare to take the Lord's day over as their own, and to uh, to have all the, the best of their games, the most competitions, and uh, have the talk shows then on afterwards talking about what happened. They tell you about what's going to happen. They, you watch the game, then they tell you about what's gonna, what's, what, you, what you just saw with your eyes. And everybody's all consumed in the gambling culture about these sports. It's a whole enterprise that was absolutely unknown in the earlier parts of America. So you can say, well, maybe that's really good. Maybe that's really an innovation that's going to prove a benefit. But I I don't think it has. There's all kinds of dependencies that have been created by it, and uh, families have broken down more. Anyway, Amos is bringing these distractions to bear upon his own people, and he's saying, this is a time for judgment. You should be thinking about judgment. It may not be a happy thing to think about, but you need to consider it. In our lives today, as people do, have we even begun to think about these things? Have we ever, have we even begun to think of what God really wants? I think in terms of worship, how evangelical, the the Protestantism in America, they haven't even begun to consider the way God wants them to worship him. And so it's, little surprised that they should think that they're transgressing the Lord. The first four commandments all have to do with worship. So the Lord calls us, first of all, with the Ten Commandments, not to think about whether we've murdered or had a sexual liaison with someone that we shouldn't have, or whether we've lied or cheated or steal. No, the first four commandments have to do with how we worship him. Who do we worship? What is his name? When do we worship? How do we worship? Are we worshiping him vainly? calling him by false names and false uh, doctrines? Are we worshiping him on the Lord's day? There's a whole group within evangelicalism uh, that that uh, think that the, the resurrection was wrong, that just because Jesus rose again from the, on the seventh day or the eighth day, that, uh, that that's no reason to change our worship day. And uh, that's a long discussion. It's not an easy one on some points, but uh, there's a whole part of the Uh, the uh, evangelical church that has that kind of uh, turned upside down. And so uh, God, God comes and he's telling the people of Israel, this is not good. Now, the third point here that we see is God. We see God invoke his own name. In verse eight, he says, the Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob. Now, when God, earlier in the Bible, when God swears by himself, this is a very holy and awesome thing. God is invoking uh, all the power of God to witness what God says. And then he's giving out a certain truth. Now, earlier in the Bible, the times when God swears by himself, it has to do with the gospel. We think of uh, Genesis chapter 15, uh, when God deals with the the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He swears by himself a number of times that he will lead his people into Israel. That he will give Abraham a son, despite the fact that Sarah is barren, or uh, uh, the, the women of the, the the women of the next couple generations. God swears that he will bring fruition to them, despite. Their barrenness, br- br- despite the difficulties that they have. So God swears by himself, but for positive things. Here, God is swearing by himself, but for negative things, for their judgment. Woe be us if and when we come, come into this kind of position. And I'm afraid that may be our position here in America. If we continue to just be dull and insolent, in the face of the living God. Secularism is not the gospel. Many of our civil or political philosophers have decided that secular, that the, a secular nation is the way to obtain happiness. What, is, what does the Bible say? It says that the nation whose God is the Lord, that is the nation who will be blessed. How dare we pronounce a gospel for secularism? But what happened in this country was... Uh, in the 18th century, people were looking at Europe and they're seeing all these religious wars. And so they thought, well, obviously, uh, we're having all these religious wars. The way to find peace is to secularize ourselves and not talk so much about religion or accept all religions as basically the same. And uh, that will be more peaceful. Well, in the satanic way, it may have worked for a little while, not very long, uh, because remember, there was a civil war in the nineteenth century. But uh, that that idea, the separation of church and state, that that has been embedded into our political philosophy, political thinking. and it's just not true. Uh, the na- the nation whose God is the Lord is the nation of blessing. And so if we tried to rec- if we tried to construct a nation on totally different grounds, Uh, then uh, that's just a dead end. Psalm 127 and 128, 127 says that uh, that the the nation whose God is the Lord, that's the one that you can put your trust in. But anyway, um, uh, so God takes an oath. We see the third point. God takes an oath here, but this time for judgment. And he goes on to say, and this is another really negative area. It's it's kind of like... um, In the last chapter, in verse 21, where God says, I hate, I despise your feast days. I do not savor your sacred assemblies. I I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs or your worship, that I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice rain down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. Well, here he says in verse 8, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his palaces. Hate! Is God being too negative? But this is the word of the Bible. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. Then it shall come to pass that if 10 men remain in a house, well, I won't go into that so much, but uh, God is definitely prophesying that there is uh, that there is that uh, there are bad things that are coming to Israel. And he's telling the people to wake up and to, to, to recognize that the chapter has changed. The chapter has changed from expecting blessing in Israel. Obedience was still necessary. Sincerity in worship was still important. But the the chapter has changed from blessing and, and focusing on blessing to now focusing on the wrath which is to come. And this was about six centuries before the coming of Christ. Israel's history and her society went downhill from this time. And uh, when Assyria came and took the 10 tribes away, uh, they, when, when, when the tribes were taken away by Babylon, they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah. God let them come back and provide for a culture that would, could birth the, the Lord Jesus Christ. But with the 10 tribes of Israel gone, they never came back unless they had escaped and got to Judah or found their way back to Judah in some way. They did not come back, and so these are spoken of as the lost ten tribes of Judah of, of Israel, and uh, uh, the, the 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 famous phrase the wandering Jew has has uh, come from this, and uh, uh, and so it's a very sober kind of a thing. <clears throat> the last point here is the God's instrument of wrath. I'm going to skip toward the end, verse fourteen. God says, "But I, Behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord God of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah, uh, or, or Arabia, as it came to be called. And so from the north to the south of Israel there, there's going to be an affliction. Uh, Amos was announcing the first part of this coming from Assyria, uh, but there would also end up coming a onslaught from Babylon against Judah. And so Amos is the one to whom whom, uh, uh, these things uh, first came. And so he's warning them uh, that, that God will do these things in history. He's done them in the past and he's going to do them Now, in our secularized culture today, it's very difficult to really think that God will do something like this, even though we have fires in Hawaii that have burned out a whole one of the most famous tourist cities in in Hawaii, just completely blazed it down to the ground. And the people's lives are now going to be put back together. And Everybody that was taking a vacation in Hawaii is either going to have to switch their destination now if they were headed for that part of the islands, which was the most popular, as I said, to some other place. But people really doubt that God is going to do what he says he does. That's why he says in verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord has sworn by himself that these things will take place in history. And woe be to those that are uh, insensible to the comings of these things. Uh, people just don't realize that they cannot hang on to their glory. Sometimes I've spoken about Scotland. It's a favorite country of mine. and..." Uh, Susan and I have actually lived there for for four-plus years, and uh, we had great fun there. But uh, Scotland today is just a shadow of its former self. We cannot, as human beings, we cannot hang on to glory just because we want to or because we like it. In Scotland today, uh, they, uh, they they were taken from being the poorest nation in all of Europe in the 1500s. And uh, they were taken to being one of the enlightenment countries of Europe in only a hundred years. It's kind of like America, where we were taken from the poorest nation in the world in the late 1700s to the most most wealthy and most powerful nation in the world by 1899. These are these are remarkable sociological historical fa- facts that the, the schools are not teaching our children anymore because they just they don't uh, they don't see the the uh, the potency of them. But anyway, uh, Scotland just did not appreciate what they what they had. They went from they went from the church owning 60 percent of the land of Scotland, thereby being really the billionaires of their day. The people that opposed John Knox in his earlier day, the Cardinal B, Arch, Arch, Archbishop Beaton and Cardinal Beaton, father, son. They were like the billionaires of their day because the church owned all this land. I've told you before. You see how the cathedrals over there have fallen in, and people say, "Oh, look at the people! Just don't care about the cathedrals." No, you had to own that much of the land, you had to own that much of the of the economy in order to keep these huge monstrosities alive. The architecture was not conducive to keeping the roofs fixed, and it had to, it was a very costly thing. And so, as they as the as the wealth of the nation transferred more to the people instead of the church. And it was a blessed thing that it did. They used some of the churches. They used the rocks from the, these cathedrals that were falling down. They used the rocks to start building houses and businesses in the cities. But the people just couldn't deal with the the um, the largeness and the prosperity that God had brought them to. And so, whether it was James Watt's steam engine, you know, the steam engine was one that was really the first working engine that you could use to help mankind with his tedious work or his, the work of moving powerful things and so the the trains could begin to move if they had a steam engine that sort of thing uh, but uh, they just uh, they just didn't um, they just didn't they didn't develop that part of their culture, which they were developing. In fact, they became a par- paradigm for the rest of Europe in this way. But they couldn't live with that largesse. They couldn't live with that prosperity. So whether it was Adam Smith in economics, who was a the, the father, many would say, of Western economics, the father of uh, free the free economy, father of um, uh, understanding that if you let people do what they wanted to do in terms of economics, you'd have the most prosperous economy uh, alive. Adam Smith did that. But they, they, they had these important cultural leaders, but they didn't, they didn't say to themselves, God is giving us blessings in the cultural area, so we ought to be, pay even more attention to our spiritual side of things. We ought to call upon the name of the Lord with even greater virtue and greater interest. So that we can have the best of both possible worlds, cult and culture, uh, the seventh day and six days. But the Scots, the Scots just grew very uh, secular. They lost sight of the importance of the Lord. And so today, when we were over there, Susan and I, they have more litter than we have in America. They have they have people from the government that work walk around every neighborhood every day and pick up litter. It's just amazing. They have a garbage man on foot and it's to just pick up the cups that kids and people throw, the, the carelessness of us. And uh, they, in uh, and, 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 uh, Glasgow, they don't serve any beer and glasses after about four o'clock on Friday afternoon. Why? Because there's so many fights with the glasses as the evening goes on. And people are killed or scarred forever by these by the shards of glass that they'll use to fight with. Uh, in in East Glasgow, the death, the the life expectancy is on on an, on a par or equal with the Gaza Strip, where there's war all the time. Now these are not the tourist spots of Scotland, but these are the real spots where the real economies are going, and uh, they, they have a lot of troubles over there today. That's why we went over in 2006 because the church, the the RP church there was almost dead. We had gone over to spell for one of the pastors that wanted a vacation. We saw this. We offered to. We said, if we can, if we can make up a, a package for uh, our budget, would you like it? For, would you like us to come back and help you here where there's need? And they said, oh yes, come back. And it was a wonderful blessing. And now they instead of having two churches, there are about five, five or six there in Scotland, where there were, there were there was only one really one healthy church when we went. And, uh, and then one that was uh, just hanging on by its knuckles. So uh, there, uh, that, that land, and that's just a paradigm for um, the rest of this area. If, if I were doing street preaching today, this, these are the kinds of things I'd focus on about how our culture is just going into the toilet and we, we do not have any sense of how to reverse it. It can only be reversed by the gospel of Christ. And yet people think that the gospel of Christ is inert. It's no longer powerful. It's no longer part of the picture. Well, in small churches like this, we see that these truths are still being held on to and still being celebrated. And so Amos would be glad just a chapter ago, Amos said, Don't no longer worry about your state, about the state of northern Israel. It's gone. Now you have to start focusing upon yourself as an individual and your families. Seek the Lord. And I, I told you at that time that when we see New Testament families like Mary and Joseph, Elizabeth and Zechariah, those people are symbolic of the people to whom Amos was preaching six centuries before that came to pass where the families understood that God had turned his back on the nation of Israel or was turning his back on the nation of Israel. And now is a time to save yourself. We know ultimately how all of this bad news cleared the ground for the coming of the last prophet after Amos and Malachi, Isaiah, Jeremiah. The last prophet, who was that? Jesus Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And Jesus came to announce a new kingdom. Now, not a specific kingdom like Israel had been, but his messianic kingdom where church people like ourselves would infiltrate all the kingdoms of the world until all peoples like Psalm 47 says, all people would come and call upon the name of the Lord. So that's our burden. That's our individual burden. And we need to beware that even though the groupthink and the culture of our day is at ease, and it seems to not have any the the foggiest idea of how to find their way back, we understand that. We understand the keys. Open your Bible. Read. Take your life as an experiment. Focus yourself on the living God. If you're not regenerated, if you're not born again, then make that the biggest prayer of your life. That's what happened to me. That's how I'm standing here today because uh, I began to worry about myself as a college student. I began to say to God, if you're real, could you please show me that and help me to understand who you are? And uh, he did, and here I am. (laughs) So let us us close and and, uh, go to prayer to God. Our Father and our God, we pray that we would be softened to hear bad news once in a while. We pray that we would see how the people of Israel were ill suited in their day to hear this. They just wanted to go on as if nothing was changed. They wanted to pretend that righteousness was not important in this world. They wanted to pretend that thou art not not the lawgiver of the world, that thy Ten Commandments and the the Mosaic law is uh, inconsequential. And you overturned their false faith and you brought chaos upon them. We pray today, O oh Lord, that the chaos that we see in America would not be of this sort. We pray that you would turn in the end from your judgments of things like COVID and fires, that you would turn from your judgment and bring power to the gospel. The people might come to these churches like this and come in the doors and ask the people what and what is your hope tell us how can we how can we have a greater sense of beauty we've lost it it just seems like everything's ugly we no longer see the beauty of work all we do want to do is lollygag on on our beds of ivory oh god help us to take us from this mindset from this group think to the group think of the kingdom of god as lovely as it is, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, bringing to us the insight of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.